would like to thank the organizers of this conference and the John Owen Center for inviting me to participate and to give the opening lecture on the interpretation of Genesis 1 through 2. In particular, I want to thank Philip Eveson and Robert Strivens of Moss and Roberts for their hard work and hospitality. It's a good venue for evangelicals to come together and to encourage thinking and inquiry. We need to be aggressive in training and equipping leaders and churches of a new generation. This past Saturday, I was reading The Times. And I ran into an article about creation and the Church of England. And before I begin my lecture, I want to read a couple of paragraphs from that article. I found it quite ironic in light of what we'll be doing at the conference in the next two days. The article begins with this paragraph. The Church of England expressed deep concerns last night about the spread of creationist views as it prepared to unveil a website promoting the evolutionary views of Charles Darwin. The church will launch the website on Monday, that's today, a few weeks after the 150th anniversary of Darwin's first public proposal of natural selection and amid growing controversy over the teaching of creationism in schools. The article goes on to say that Anglican leaders fear noisy creationists, especially those from the United States. <laughs> they are afraid that noisy Americans are, quote, infecting the perception of Christianity worldwide. Now, I am an American Christian who holds to a biblical view of creation, and frankly, I'm sometimes noisy about it. And here I am in London speaking at a conference on creation, the Bible, and science. And so as I read that article, I was wondering if I should take it personally. <laughs> Did they know I was coming? <laughs> Is that what's going on here? It was quite striking. Now, what we're going to do, we're going to begin our time together by reading from the book of Genesis. We're going to read... Genesis chapter 1, and into a few verses of Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 1. We are so familiar with this passage, I think we sometimes read it and just gloss over it. But let's listen to it in its great depth and mystery. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. 
Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, so the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit whose seed is in itself according to its kind. God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmaments of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters abound with the abundance of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures, and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind, God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beasts of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. 
And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. One of the great hallmarks of the Reformation, as we are well aware, is the principle that the original meaning of a text is the basis of the proper interpretation of a text. John Calvin and others decided and desired to get at the real meaning, what they called the realia of the biblical text. As A.M. Hunter comments, fidelity to the meaning of the original was Calvin's first principle. To put it simply, Christian doctrine must be based on the original and literal intent of the biblical authors. This tenet had a truly anti-allegorical bent. Prior to the Reformation, allegory dominated biblical interpretation. Calvin, although he was known to taste allegory every once in a while, called allegory a contrivance of Satan and merely a bunch of monkey tricks. The reformational principle of interpretation may be summed up in the Latin phrase, sensum ne emphoris sed ephoris. That is, do not carry a meaning into the scriptures, but draw it out of the scriptures. And when we consider passages like Genesis 1, we must take great pains to discover what the author's intention is in his presentation of the text. Why did he write it, and what was his purpose and intent? I believe this is the key presupposition for us as we approach the opening chapter of Scripture. Now, the best place for us to begin, and I believe is really uh, uh, the most important point, is for us to determine and define the genre of the text of Genesis 1. Genre may be defined as a literary type which has a distinctive form, content, and technique. And so in Scripture we have many genres. For example, I have just completed a commentary on the book of Numbers, to be published next year, and that book has generic variety. There's narrative and poetry and prophecy and prayer and blessing and law. There's a victory song, a travel itinerary, a census list, a temple archive. At the real heart of interpretation is, first of all, definition of genre. Now, in regard to Genesis 1, there have been various proposals made as to its genre. Indeed, what is its literary mode or method? What was the writer intending to convey with the literary genre he employed for this opening text of Scripture, for the very first text of the Torah? What was the Mosaic author 
intended. The first thing we need to dispel in regards to genre is the common assertion that Genesis 1 is a Hebrew poetic piece. In this regard, we must first determine what defines Hebrew poetry and then see if Genesis 1 fits that genre. Now, English poetry is defined primarily by two elements, rhyme and meter. Hebrew poetry, at least in my humble opinion, employs neither one. How then do we define Hebrew poetry? Well, one of the most basic stylistic features of Hebrew poetry is what is termed line parallelism. You have perhaps seen it and didn't know it. For example, Psalm 19, verse 1. Listen to what it says. First line, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. The second line, and the firmament is proclaiming the work of his hands. The second line corresponds to the first line in grammatical and semantic equivalence. The second line basically says what the first line says using different vocabulary and giving some additional information to the first line. Parallelism is Hebrew poetry. Now, as we look at Genesis 1, what do we see? Genesis 1 lacks line parallelism that is an important and essential characteristic of Hebrew poetry. There is no line parallelism in Genesis 1. Yes, I understand that there is, <clears throat> excuse me, perhaps a parallelism of ideas, a parallelism of thoughts in Genesis according to the structure of the days, but there is a striking lack of line parallelism. Another prominent feature of Hebrew poetry is the ubiquitous use of figures of speech. Now, clearly, figures of speech are used in lots of different genres. You'll get figures of speech in prose and narrative, in prophecy, and in other genres. However, figures of speech occur prominently in poetry, but in a more intense denser and more compact way than they do in prose or narrative. <clears throat> Excuse me, Psalm 42.1. The first line, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Not only is this verse a line parallelism, but it employs a most evocative figure of a simile. Genesis 1 contains no indication of figurative language, such as schema or tropes. There appears in it no symbolism and no metaphoric language. <clears throat> this would be highly unusual for Hebrew poetic language. A third common characteristic of Hebrew poetry is the appearance of strophic or stanzaic structure. 
<coughs> a stanza may be, may be defined, a Hebrew stanza may be defined as a series of verses in parallel that combine into one distinct grouping, much like a modern English hymn. It is, of course, quite obvious that no such strophic structure is clearly demarcated in Genesis 1. There's no line parallelism, so there can be no stanzas. Now, some scholars would argue that the repetitive structure of Genesis 1 reflects Hebrew poetic structure. In other words, each of the six days has a similar pattern. And that's true. As you look at each of the six days, it begins with an announcement. And God said... And then follows a command, let there be. And then follows the report, and it was so. Then follows an evaluation, and God saw that it was good. And then finally, a temporal framework, and there was evening, and there was morning, day one, and following through the six days. So there is indeed a similar pattern to each of the days. Thus, there is no denying that Genesis 1 is a highly stylized and structured piece. But here is the question. Because a text is highly structured, repetitive, and one of great symmetry, does that mean it is a poetical piece? The reality is, in Hebrew literature, that repetitive formulas, repetitive structures, do not necessarily denote poetry. In fact, the entire book of Genesis is structured according to a repetitive formula, the so-called Toledot formula. These are the generations of. The books of Kings are structured by the repetitive maxim regarding the king that he did good or evil in the eyes of the Lord. Other genres besides poetry can be highly stylized, can be well-structured and symmetric pieces. <laughs> Consider, for example, the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1 or the temptation accounts in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. See, particularly in Luke 4, three temptations of the devil followed by Jesus quoting Deuteronomy three times. There's great symmetry to that pericope, to that block of material. Yet, clearly these are not poetical. These are historical counts and narrative in genre or methodology. The truth is, Genesis 1 has all the markings of Hebrew narrative. Genesis 1 has all the markings of Hebrew narrative. The most important grammatical marker in biblical Hebrew is a device that is called a vav consecutive plus imperfect. I know that one just flew right over your head. <laughs> but when you read something like, and it was, and it came to pass, that's the device I'm talking about. <clears throat> is the way in which a Hebrew writer pre presents events in historical sequence. It appears commonly, ubiquitously throughout Hebrew narrative, but it is almost non-existent in Hebrew poetry. 
For example, if you go to the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 1, this device, this Vav consecutive plus imperfect, appears four times in chapter 1. It appears over 20 times in Joshua chapter 2 and so forth through the remainder of the book. In Genesis 1, this narrative device occurs 51 times. The genre question then is this. If the text was not meant to be taken sequentially or historically, why does the biblical writer employ this narrative device so freely? I know of no other chapter in the Old Testament that uses the device so frequently. In Hebrew narrative... The Hebrew writers often employ a word which serves as a sign of the coming direct object. So you have a subject and verb, and then comes the direct object. The Hebrew writers add a word to tell you the direct object's coming. It's a really nice thing. It is the Hebrew word, eight. It almost never occurs in Hebrew poetry. But it's a clear marker of narrative. It's a clear marker of historical narrative. The sign of the direct object appears twice in the very first verse of the Bible. Bereshit bara Elohim, eight hashamayim, that eight haaretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The very first word of the Bible. Bereshit, in the beginning, is a term that actually in Hebrew introduces a multi-step process of sequence. In other words, a proper translation of the term Bereshit is in the first step, at the head of the line. It indicates that there are other steps that will follow in sequence. The very first word indicates consecution and sequence. An obvious point, but one worth noting in this discussion, is that the days of Genesis 1 are numbered by the author. And foundation to numerals is the concept of sequence. In other words, counting is sequential. It's chronological by its very nature. Derek Kidner commented in his work on Genesis that, quote, the march of days is too majestic a progress to carry no implication of ordered sequence. It also seems oversubtle to adopt a view of the passage which discounts one of the primary impressions it makes on the ordinary reader. Indeed, the numbers that the author employs are ordinals and not cardinals. Cardinals, one, two, three. Ordinals, first, second, third. Ordinals indicate sequence, consecution, and succession. Another 
an important hermeneutical principle of the Reformation is when one considers a difficult portion of Scripture that Scripture interprets Scripture. Now, let us assume that Genesis 1 is a difficult text. That's not a hard assumption for us to make. And let's say it's a difficult text in regard to its genre. The question then becomes, how does the rest of Scripture treat the question of genre in Genesis 1? I am unaware of any text in the Bible that would suggest that Genesis 1 is a poetic or figurative piece. In reality, when the creation account is referenced in the remainder of Scripture, chronology, sequence, and history prevail. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. The Sabbath command. There, the creation week has real analogy to the human week, in which man works six days and then has a climactic Sabbath day of rest. Psalm 104 appears to confirm the sequence of creation in Genesis 1. The truth is that Genesis 1 is not Hebrew poetry, as so many authors would claim. While the main claimants of this is Meredith Klein, who was a professor of mine in the States, uh, he was the main proponent of the framework view of creation. He said the following, quote, Exegesis indicates that the scheme of the creation week itself is a poetic figure and that the several pictures of creation history are set within the six workday frames, not chronologically, but topically. The main argument is that because the account is poetic, thus it is not sequential or chronological. In his later writings, Klein began to call the genre of Genesis 1 as, quote, semi-poetic. That's because some of his students disagreed with him. But... We must also admit that Genesis 1 is not ordinary prose. It's not ordinary narrative. It describes a unique event, a once-in-history event, and it is highly structured. See John Collins perhaps has the best description of its genre when he calls it exalted prose narrative. Elevated style, but yet narrative. It's elevated because of what it's describing. But it's narrative because it's describing something historical. Exalted prose narrative. This description properly reflects the sequence and chronology of the account, while at the same time underscoring its exceptional quality. The sequence of the creation account, I would argue, plays an important role 
in the biblical writers, theological instruction and purpose. Yes, he has the intent to write narrative and historical narrative, but he also is intent on teaching us about God. In other words, I would argue to dismiss sequence and chronology, as some commentators do, like the framework theorists, like Meredith Klein and others, that they take the very heart out of the theological teaching of Genesis 1, the authorial intent of what the Mosaic author is trying to teach us. Now, let me take a few minutes to demonstrate exactly what I mean. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, we read the following. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, here the earth is being pictured in its process of creation. And first we see what the text says is that the earth was without form. This is the Hebrew word tohu that commonly reflects a state of wilderness and wildness. Second, the text says that the earth was bohu. It's tohu and bohu. This word that's often translated as void is a term that actually means emptiness. Thus, at this point in the creation process, the earth is wild and empty. It is tohu and bohu. Now, what happens in the creation account is in verses 3 through 10 of Genesis 1, that is the first three days of creation, we see that God is subduing the wildness. He is subduing the wilderness and ruling over his creation. He is bringing about an ordered world. He is putting things in their proper structure. Here God is taking care of the tohu. He is bringing the chaos into order. Now note, very important, how God brings things into order by naming the creative elements. For example... A literal reading of verse 5 says the following. God called to the light day. And to the darkness he called night. God is actually naming these elements of creation. And in the ancient Near East, to name something means to have authority over the object. It indicates rulership over it. And thus God in the first three days here is subduing and ruling over the members of creation through the medium of the word by naming them. And he does this with creative intelligence. He creatively invents names for the objects that he has created. In the next three days of creation, Verses 11 through 25, God works on the bohu. That is the emptiness of the universe. He is pictured as filling the structures. He is 
filling the heavens with a starry host and filling the earth with animate life. Thirdly, and finally, we read in Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3, that God rests from his labors of subduing and ruling and filling. God's creative work moves to this climax, moves to this crescendo of the Sabbath. Do you see? There is a necessary sequence from creation to Sabbath. And this consecution, this order, is paradigmatic for the history of the cosmos, and in particular for the history of humanity. There's a creation and a consummation. A creation, everything moving sequentially to this crescendo of this eternal Sabbath. Now, the creation of mankind is pivotal in this creation account. It's recorded in Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Listen to what it says. And God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the cattle and over all the land and over all the creeping things that creep upon the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Now, in these two verses, the term image appears three times. It is the Hebrew word selim. And the Hebrew word selim is found 16 times in the Old Testament. And most of its occurrences are in references to idols. And those references have to do with how wooden or stone objects are representations of pagan gods. Well, the word selim is also used when a king sets up a statue of himself in a land he has conquered. The purpose of the statue is to represent to the conquered peoples the sovereignty and authority of the king over them. Although he is not there, here is this representation of his sovereignty. You can see Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. Now, we can draw two conclusions regarding the use of the word image in the Old Testament. First, a selim is a physical representation of a god or a king. Second, that image is used to indicate or represent the king's dominion and hegemony. Now, for the creation of mankind in Genesis 1, it signifies man's dominion over God's creation and that he is God's representative in that creation. And thus, mankind is created imago dei, that is, in the image of God. But what we need to understand and what's really fruitful for our purposes is this truth of Imago Dei not only affects who man is, but how he acts and how he lives. Being Imago Dei requires that man act imitatio Dei. That is, in imitation of God. Now, in the early chapters of Genesis, we see that mankind does indeed reflect 
and imitate God. In chapter 2, mankind subdues and rules over creation by cultivating the garden and especially by naming the animals. Man, like God, shows his rule and authority through the medium of the word by naming the creatures of the animal kingdom. He is demonstrating his creative intelligence through thought, words, and speech. Man is taking care of the tohu. Man is taking care of the tohu. Mankind then imitates God by filling the earth with his creative work. And this role is accomplished by mankind in plurality, male and female, filling the earth with their little image bearers. And this role is further accomplished by man serving as gardener and filling the earth with produce. Man is to take care of the bohu. And I would further suggest that it is implied that mankind would imitate God by keeping the Sabbath day of rest. This expectation, of course, is later confirmed in the Ten Commandments, in which God says that his rest from his work of subduing, ruling, and filling is paradigmatic or a model for mankind's weekly rest. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Let me read those verses to you. Exodus chapter 20, beginning at verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Do you understand what's going on here? Is that man is created and commissioned by God to reproduce God's own activity seen in creation. That is, to subdue, to fill, and to rest. Man is called to follow that sequence in life. That is his cultural mandate. In reality, I would argue, to misclassify the genre of Genesis 1 is to do harm to the overall intent and purpose of the text. To dismiss the sequence and chronology of the text would destroy its paradigmatic character. It would call into question the sense of imitatio dei that is so central to the purpose of the account. The text is exalted narrative. The text is exalted historical narrative. And it ought to be treated as such. Thank you. And uh, I guess we're going to have time for questions. Have a little roast here, I suppose. <laughs>